again. Can you hear me fine? Brilliant. Well, this morning our message is from uh, Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is one of the shorter books in the Bible. It's only about four chapters long. Um, Now, quite often when we think of Ruth, we think of the love story that involves Ruth and Boaz. However, as we read through this first chapter, we actually uncover a bit of a road to ruins story. It's a tale of poor choices and of things from going from bad to worse. This book is mainly about Ruth's story, but in the first chapter there is a lot of focus on her mother-in-law, Naomi. And the thing that hits us is the disastrous circumstances that Naomi finds herself in. And it's one thing after another that leads to a completely hopeless situation with no apparent way out. And as we read through this chapter, a few things will stand out to us. Firstly, God is in control. It may not look like that to us when we're in the middle of our worst moments. It sometimes seems that God is a million miles away, but he is in control. Sometimes bad things that happen, whether they are consequences of our actions or they are thrust upon us from nowhere, these things can be the stepping stones to where God is leading us. We see that in the case of Naomi and Ruth as we make our way through this book. Even in chapter 1 it's evident that God's hand is at work. There is a glimpse of hope given in the midst of all the hopelessness that we read about. Secondly, we are also given two examples of faithfulness from Naomi and from Ruth. Now it's clear that Naomi and her family were righteous people who had faith in God. Her faith and belief in God, despite her circumstances, speaks volumes to us. Ruth also gives us an example of faith when she resolves to make the God of Israel her God. He is a God who is completely foreign to her, but she places her fate and her trust and her faith in him. So let's read Ruth chapter 1 and then we'll explore these points a little bit further. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later both Marlon and Killian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. 
Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her two daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? the woman asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have um, spoken through your word and Lord, we just pray this morning as we, we look at this chapter of Ruth that Lord, that your spirit will just be upon us, that Lord, that you give us an understanding of your word and Lord, just a, an open and an acceptance for what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
So as we move through this reading, we started out with a step-by-step path to disaster. Different events led to Naomi losing her husband and then her sons. And this ended with a situation of complete despair. The men were gone and Naomi, Orpah and Ruth were left to fend for themselves. Now that wouldn't be as big a problem in our day and age, but in the culture they lived in, these three women were left with nothing and they had no means of supporting themselves. And then there is this glimmer of hope. The Lord blessed the people back home with good crops. So maybe if Naomi returned home and her daughters-in-law returned to their families and remarried, things would be better. Life would be better. Surely they wouldn't be any worse. And then we see the different interactions between Naomi and Ruth and later again between Naomi and the woman back home. And these interactions, they give us an insight into the strength and the incredible faith that we can draw encouragement from. Encouragement on how we face different and difficult challenges that we encounter. So firstly, let's look at how all this misfortune came about. And as we do so, just take note of God's hand in every aspect of what took place. So let's look at this road to ruin. The opening statement of Ruth 1 explains a lot. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel. So these events, they took place at the end of the time of Judges. And this was um, approximately about 100 years before the time of King David. And this era was one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. It spanned for about 400 years. The Israelites had entered the Promised Land under Joshua. They had victoriously conquered the land and they had taken possession of it. But after their triumphs, they had settled in and they entered into a period of time when they constantly rebelled against the very God who had delivered them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. The people would sin, God would send enemies against them, the people would cry out to God for help, and then God in his mercy would raise up a judge to deliver them. And then it all happened over again. The people would rebel, God would send his judgment and so it would go on and on. This cycle of disobedience and deliverance occurred seven times throughout the times of judges. It really was a time of constant failure and of faithfulness, unfaithfulness to the law of God. In fact, the final verse of Judges sums up the situation very accurately and it sets the scene for the very next verse which is Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Judges 21:25. In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is the backdrop that Ruth is set against. Now, the beauty of the account of Ruth is that even though it was the worst of times, God's hand was still at work. And we get a glimpse of that here this morning. We see it on a personal scale 
concerning Naomi and Ruth. When God seemed to be a million miles away, what really was happening was that he was setting up the foundation of happier days that were to come in their lives. And it didn't seem possible at the time. We see these blessings come into reality in the later chapters of Ruth. But also on a, on a national scale, God was paving the way to King David. Ruth and Boaz would be the grandparents of David and it was David who would lead the nation to the time of Israel's greatest glory, to what we could call their golden age. But in the current climate that Ruth and Naomi were in, that just didn't seem possible. So not only did Naomi and her family live in one of Israel's darkest times, but things got worse. Famine hit the land. And this famine is possibly a direct result of the disobedience of the Israelites. You see, God had warned them before they entered the promised land. He had gathered the people and this is one of the warnings that he gave them through Moses. And this is from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 14. If you carefully obey the commands I am giving you today, and if you love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and soul, then he will send the rains in their proper seasons, the early and late rains, so you can bring in your harvest of grain, new wine and olive oil. He will give you lush pasture land for your livestock and you yourselves will have all you want to eat. But be careful, this is the warning, but be careful, don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain and the ground will fail to produce its harvest then you will quickly die in that good land the Lord has given you. So this famine hits and it's in all likelihood that it was God's hand against his people because of their disobedience. God has punished the sin of Israel by bringing this famine. He warned them about this and now it was happening. So things must have been pretty bad under the famine because Eli Malik and his family choose to upstate and to head for Moab. And this, when we look at it, demonstrates a couple of things to us. Firstly, the famine must have been pretty severe. The choice to head off to Moab was made out of desperation. Now when you are considering greener pastures to, to emigrate to, Moab would not have been a place that immediately springs to mind. We have a bit of a description of Moab here from John MacArthur. He says, Moab itself was a mostly desolate region, a high tableland bounded on the west by the Dead Sea and on the east by arid desert wasteland. Its boundaries on the north and south were two deep river gorges and these were virtually dry most of the year. Moab was fertile, but it was also dry, and therefore the land was largely destitute of trees, 
good mostly for grazing flocks and herds. And this place was Elomelech's best option. So things must have been pretty bad for them to head to Moab for a better life. Maybe they had flocks and herds, I'm not sure. The other thing is that immigrating to Moab was in direct disobedience to the word of God. And there's two aspects to this. Firstly, God had called the Israelites to live in the land that he had given them. And secondly, he had called them to separate themselves from the nations that surrounded them. And Moab itself was not particularly a good place to go and live. It was a pagan nation and it had a very dubious history and culture. Moab himself was the son of Lot's oldest daughter and he was the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. So that's not really a great start there. The Moabites, of course, are descendants of Moab. And then we look at the religion of the Moabites and, and that in itself was quite weird and quite scary. The Moabites worshipped many gods and their chief god was Chemosh. And he was not a very nice character. And he's referred to in Kings as the abomination of Moab. And we can read about that in 1 Kings 11 and 2 Kings 23. Also their worship sometimes involved human sacrifice, such as the example in 2 Kings chapter 3. And apparently Moabite worship was filled with erotic imagery and lewd conduct. So it's not quite what we would think of as religion. It's it's quite, quite different, quite weird and quite scary. Also the history between the Israelites and the Moabites wasn't that great either. In Numbers 25, the Moabite women seduced some of the Israelite men. This is at the time when the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. And, and these men, they went off and worshipped the gods of Moab. This was a disastrous moment in the history of Israel and it had a disastrous outcome for them. And another historical incident was when a Moabite king, King Balak, he hired Balaam to prophesy against Israel. So we see that throughout the time of history that the relationship between Israel and Moab was not the best. So it's at this point you probably feel like grabbing Eli Melech and shaking him and saying, why, oh why, would you take your family to live amongst those people? They represent everything that God warned you to stay away from. It's like the kids that your mum didn't want you to play with. There was a good reason she didn't want you playing with them. And there was a good reason why God set his people apart. The only thing that we can say for Eli Malak is that he must have been in a real desperate situation to make what appears to be such a desperate choice. What would we have done? Would we choose what appears to be the best option even though we know it doesn't line up with the word of God? 
Well, this choice to go to Moab didn't pan out too well for Eli Malak. Once he arrived in Moab and they settled there, he died. And it's at this stage that Naomi would be starting to feel that things have become overwhelming. Here she is, she's uprooted everything to come to the strange and foreign land. And now on top of that, she is dealing with the grief of losing her husband. And I think that it's probably at this point that she's starting to feel the hand of God's judgement on her life as well. She and her sons, they push on in their new home. But as we know, this isn't the end of their misfortune. The next thing that happens is another dubious choice is made. Naomi's sons take Moabite women to be their wives. Any upstanding Israelite would question this choice. God said, don't take foreign wives. In fact, this command of God's applied to Canaanite women, where they were going into the land and taken over the land, because there was this danger that they would turn their husbands away to other gods. However, common sense would also suggest that this should also apply to Moabite women. You know, sometimes we're all guilty of making dubious decisions ourselves. We compromise a bit. We know what the will of God is. We know what the Bible says. But sometimes it appears that the best or the only option that we have ahead of us is a little bit, you know, a little bit dodgy. I mean, we can understand Eli Malik, Marlon and Killian to a degree. When you look at Eli Malik's situation, it's like he's saying, you know, there's a famine going on and I need to provide for my family. There's an opportunity over there in Moab. It'll only be for a season. What other options do I have? And then Marlon and Killian, you know, I've met this girl. She is the right one for me. Besides, there's not a lot of Israelite women around these parts. Am I really meant to travel all the way back to Bethlehem to find a wife? I feel that it's the right thing for me to get married and to start a family. That's what my family expects. What other options do I have? Sometimes the hard choices are just that. They are the hard choices. Not only do we really, really need to seek the will of God, but maybe we should ask ourselves, if I choose to go this way, am I playing with fire? And I think we see that happening here. Some of the choices they made were in direct contradiction with God's word. They were playing with fire and sadly the outcome leads to more grief and more pain. As we know, disaster strikes again. Naomi's sons die, which must have been absolutely devastating. And on top of the grief of the loss of her sons, there is another compounding issue. The sons and their wives were childless. The family had no children. And if you remember back to Hannah, you may recall just how important it was in that culture to have children. 
Children provided identity and security and they became workers in the family business sort of way, not in the, not in the slave sort of way. Though I think some of my children think I worked them in the slave sort of way. No children in particular. <laughs> and of course, they carried on the family line and the family name. So Naomi suffered blow after blow after blow and she was now in a situation of complete tragedy. And of course, she was not alone in this tragedy. Her daughters-in-law, Orpah, I keep going to just about call Orpah Oprah, I don't know where that comes from, her daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth had also lost their husbands and together all three of them were in dire straits. Everything had fallen apart. You know, none of us are immune to these sorts of situations. We can end up there because of the choices we made or because sometimes things happen out of our control and out of the blue. Well, what happens in the rest of the chapter brings out some truths and some examples of faith and resolve that we can learn from. Naomi and Ruth provide us with some good pointers of what to do when we are in dire straits. So there's this glimmer of hope that comes in verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord has blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So finally there was some good news. So Naomi decides to head back to Bethlehem and she heads off with Orpah and Ruth. They get part way when Naomi then tries to persuade her daughters-in-law to go back to their own homes and possibly they would find new husbands there. And I think it must have been weighing heavily on Naomi's mind about the prospects of her two daughters-in-law completing the journey back to Bethlehem and what really lay ahead for them there. And so she tries to convince them to go back to their own people and to their own gods. She was probably concerned that she had nothing to offer them. In recent years things had gone from bad to worse. And she tells them that her condition was worse than theirs. They were still young and they had the chance to remarry. If they tried to remain loyally by her side and faithful to the names of their husbands, they would find nothing but pain. You see, Naomi and Israel could offer these girls very little prospects of new husbands. There's a custom in Israel that when an Israelite husband died, his brother or near relative was to marry the widow and continue his brother's name. Naomi felt that she was too old to remarry and even if she could, it wasn't practical for her to have sons or more sons for these girls to marry. And maybe she also had forgotten about Boaz. Of course, the culture of those times was different from ours. They couldn't just shift country and find some compatible local men to marry. And there was also the whole Israelite thing about not taking foreign wives. So Naomi thought it was pointless for Orpah and Ruth to remain faithful to the family name. It was like it was a dead end. 
So she tried to convince them to return home and to make a new start there. Naomi also felt that the hand of the Lord was against her. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. She didn't want them to be swept up any further in her misfortune. Their lives would become just as bitter as hers. So at this point she convinced Orpah and Orpah left and headed home. But Ruth was determined to stay with Naomi no matter what. Naomi tried to convince her again to go home but to no avail. So let's look a little bit at Ruth and Ruth's faithfulness. Given the situation and the prospects for Ruth, her loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi is something quite amazing. Listen to her words. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. There's a number of points about this statement that Ruth makes. Firstly, she had made the God of Israel her God. Now I believe that this family knew their God and they were a godly family. Sure they made some poor choices and they paid dearly for them. But they knew who God was. And that will be evident in a few moments when we look at Naomi's confession of God and of his sovereignty in her life. Ruth would have learnt about God from her husband and from Naomi. So clearly Ruth knew who the God of Israel was and she was prepared to leave her customs and her gods behind to make Israel's God her God. And despite Naomi's bitter experiences, Ruth still trusted Naomi's God. And then there was what she was leaving behind and what she was heading into that makes the stand of faith quite remarkable. She was leaving her own family and her own land, everything that was familiar to her. And she was going into an unknown land with new customs and a new language. She would have had to adapt to all of this and it may have appeared quite daunting. And as far as she knew, she was heading into a life of being a widow and of not having children. Yet she was still at quite a young age. Her commitment to Naomi was outstanding. Even if Naomi was to die, her commitment went beyond that. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So even if Naomi was to die when they went back to this to Bethlehem, she was not going to return home. She was going to stay in this new land regardless of whatever situation she found herself in. Okay, let's look at Naomi. So Ruth sticks with Naomi and the two women return to Bethlehem. Now the response of the locals gives us a little bit of insight in the standing of Elimelech 
and Naomi and their families in that community. The entire town was excited by Naomi and Ruth's arrival. Naomi had been away for at least 10 years but the people of Bethlehem remembered her fondly and they were excited to see her return. But what was Naomi's response? Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? And that term, caused me to suffer, also means or has testified against me. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy against me? Naomi felt that she needed a name change. The name Naomi means pleasant or sweet and she certainly didn't feel that that was an appropriate name anymore. Her life was anything but pleasant and sweet. The name Mara means bitter. Now, the name change didn't mean that she now had a bitter outlook, nor did it mean that she had become a bitter person or even that she was bitter against God. Rather, her life had become bitter. This is what she said, Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. You see, Naomi understood three things. She knew that her God existed. She knew that her God was sovereign. And she knew that because of his sovereignty, God had afflicted her. It's clear that she knew these aspects about God. What she appears to have not realised, or what she had forgotten about, was that God also provides and that God's purposes are for good. Though under the circumstances, can we really blame her for not remembering about God's provision? This story is similar to Joseph's in some way. Naomi would have known about Joseph. He was taken by his brothers and sold as a slave. He was falsely accused and wrongly imprisoned. And even when there was a glimmer of hope of him getting out of prison, the cupbearer forgot about him. This went on for years and his situation would have also seemed beyond hope. But he remained faithful. He knew that God was still God no matter what his circumstances were. God is sovereign. God is in control. And as we know, in time God delivered him. The cupbearer finally remembered him and he was released from prison. And then what happened? He rose to be second in charge in Egypt. And when famine hit, it was Joseph who provided for his family. He provided for the very brothers who had sold him into slavery. So while Naomi recognised that God was real and that he was sovereign and that he had caused things to go wrong for her, she had apparently forgotten that it is God who provides. It was God that took away the famine and opened up the way home. And more of God's provision can be seen in verse 22. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
It was the right time to hit town. It was God's timing. And of course, Naomi also had Ruth. Here is the young lady who was a true daughter to her. She had clung tightly to her despite everything. Ruth was a gift and a blessing to Naomi. Naomi said, The Lord has brought me home empty. No, that's, that's not quite right. As chapters 2 and 4 will reveal, it is through what she did bring back from Moab, that is Ruth, that she would know joy and blessing again. And what she had no way of knowing is that her daughter Ruth would be the grandmother of the greatest king of Israel, King David. And this king would foreshadow the greatest king of the world, Jesus Christ. Naomi suffered a lot, so much so that she wanted to be known as bitter. That was what her life had become. But she knew God existed, she knew he was sovereign, and she knew that he had brought all these trials upon her. God is God in the good times and the bad. So, what can we conclude from Ruth chapter 1? Well, I have four conclusions, four points there in conclusion. The first one is that God reigns in all aspects of our lives. And this is probably the, the main point of the whole chapter. This morning I've used the word sovereign a few times to describe God and his actions. God's sovereignty means that God reigns in all aspects of our lives. It doesn't mean that he's there for the good times and then when the bad times roll around he's gone to the beach. It may feel like God is a million miles away when things turn to custard, but that's not true. God is at work in all aspects of our lives. He gives the rain and he takes the rain away. He gives life and he takes life away. Whatever else that Naomi doubted, she did not doubt that God was involved in every aspect of her life. Naomi was quite right in her declaration of God. The Lord has caused me to suffer. And that brings us to our second conclusion. And that is, God provides and his purposes are for good. So God does provide, but sometimes that provision comes through hard times. And we've seen that this morning as we've read through Ruth chapter 1. Now every time we suffer, it doesn't mean it's because of the consequences of mistakes that we've made. In Naomi's case, that does appear to be exactly what has happened. They chose to go to a pagan land and for their sons to take foreign wives. However, what's encouraging about this situation is that God is willing to turn his judgement into his provision. And that's a little bit mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, we can point at the finger at Naomi and we can say, well, what did you expect? That these things would happen if you did what was against the will of God. But despite the poor choices and the subsequent consequences, we see that God works through this situation. He brings about his provision and his plans for good. Now even though God brought his hand against Naomi and that judgement was harsh, he was about to turn things around by providing for Naomi and his good purposes would become 
reality. Now, of course, I'm not saying here that this is a step-to-step guide on how to discover God's plans and provisions. There are probably better and easier ways to go about that. Now, what I am saying is that God is in control and his plans and purposes will come about despite our best efforts to derail things. It would not be very wise to put ourselves in harm's way. Now it's not always the case that we suffer hardships because we reap what we sow. Sometimes things just seem to go wrong for no apparent reason. David speaks about righteous people experiencing troubles in Psalm 34.19. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. So we can face hardship that is of our own making when the hand of the Lord is against us or we can face many troubles because that is just how life is. Either way, the point is that God reigns in our life in all of these situations. And there might be some reason for the hardship. During the bad times, he might be trying to get our attention. He might be stopping us in our tracks before we go beyond the point of getting into some really deep doo-doo. Or he might be strengthening our character. Or he is leading us through some pain and hardship before we come into some blessing. It may even be the case that we never really understand what it was all about. But we know that God reigns. We know that he provides no matter how hard the road for that provision is. And we know that his purposes are for the good of his people. Our third conclusion is that God saves. One of the key verses of the whole book of Ruth is in verse 16 of chapter 1, which is Ruth's declaration of her faith in God. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. God saved Ruth. She was born into a pagan land with pagan customs a pagan inheritance and pagan gods. She was doomed to die there in that pagan land without God. And it's the same for us. We are born into the sin of this world. We have inherited the sinfulness and are doomed to die in our sin without God. The gods of this world cannot save us from this destiny. Only through Jesus Christ can we know salvation from our sins and know an eternity with him? As we know, Ruth left her gods and her culture behind to live among the Israelites and with the God of Israel. And when we come to salvation, we too have a culture change and we too leave our gods and our customs and our sinful inheritance behind so that we can truly live a life unto God with a new inheritance. Now it's not that we are leaving behind family and friends or are withdrawing from society. That's not what I'm talking about here. No, we put behind us the gods of this world, the things that hinder us or block us from a full-on relationship with him. We put them inside and we embrace the word of God and the spirit of God as the main driving force of our lives. Of course, we all know that This is a process in itself. So God saves. 
Do you need to come to Jesus and commit your life to him, much like Ruth did with God? Or maybe you are already saved but are holding on to the old life and certain aspects of your Christian walk. Again, may Ruth's resolve towards God be your resolve towards him. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Our fourth conclusion point is about trusting God in the worst of times. We're not immune to hardships and desperate times just because we are Christians and I hope you draw encouragement from Naomi's and Ruth's account in Ruth's 1. Despite being in the midst of her darkest days, Naomi knew that God was there and was at work in her life. And I encourage you this morning, and if you identify with Naomi, that you stand firm in your trust and in your faith in God, that you confess that he is Lord of your life regardless. And also, don't feel that you have to face your darkest days alone. We have a whole community of fellow Christians here who can identify with you. They love and care for you and they want to stand by you. As a church, we should be caring for and supporting one another. We may not be able to solve the issue at hand, but the least we can do is provide comfort, to be there and to pray with one another. Look at Naomi and Ruth. Ruth's name in Hebrew means companion or friend. And wasn't she a true friend to Naomi in the middle of Naomi's darkest days? She clung to her and she refused to leave her. Now isn't that a true friend, an example to all of us? So in your bad times, remember that God is in control and he will provide and his purposes are for good. Let's finish with Psalm chapter 34 verse 19. The righteous person faces many troubles but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. Let us pray. Lord, we just uh, just thank you so, so much, that, Lord, that you are always there, that, Lord, that you are always working in every aspect of our lives. And, Lord, we just pray that we acknowledge you in our lives, that we acknowledge you as the Lord of our lives. And Lord, may we submit to you more and more each day. Lord, we just uh, uplift anyone amongst us who is going through hardships, who is going through very tough times. And Lord, we just pray that, Lord, that they, they know you, Lord, that they will lean upon you and trust in you. Lord, may they be encouraged, Lord, that they know that you are working in their lives, that, Lord, that you are the God who provides. And, Lord, I just pray that they know people who will gather around them, who will just stand by them and pray with them as well. Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time where we can gather this morning and we pray that uh, we will go forth and, and just focus on your words and what you are saying to us.
In the name of Jesus, amen.